Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast for another episode of Going Deeper Online. I am joined today on the fabulous End of the Word panel by my friend, Pastor Mark Bertrand from Walsh Baptist Church in Simcoe, Ontario, Pastor Stephen Bray from St. John's, Newfoundland, and Dr. Wyatt Graham from TGC Canada. So thank you all. Thanks for being with us. Good to be, Good to be here. here. All right, well, let's jump right into it today. Our first column uh, in, in our readings this week uh, brought us through arguably one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible. It's, it's on my top three alongside of uh, Judges 19 and Ezekiel 16, talking obviously about Genesis 38. Uh, that is a weird chapter. It's, it's awkward. It's uh, tricky to do for family devotions. I will tell you that having done it, uh, you know, cause I got, I have a lot of kids and they stretch over a number of years. My oldest is 23. My youngest is nine. I think I've covered this for family devotions three times. It doesn't get any easier as you go. So brother Mark, walk us through the story. Tell us why it's in the Bible. Tell us what it means. And then maybe give us some advice, uh, you know, give some advice to pastors and parents as to how they should make use of this chapter. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is the story of, of uh, Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. It's really interesting. We get to see, um, I think last week we talked a little bit about the sins of the father. And Jacob, for many, many years of his life, was a deceiving, cheating, scheming character. Well into the stage where his older boys uh, kind of grew up with that kind of a dad. And you, you wonder how much of this rubs off on them. Because you see in, in um, Judah, um, a scheming, cheating, wretched kind of character, marries a Canaanite wife, has three sons. Uh, when his sons grow up, his firstborn son marries Tamar. And all the scriptures is, is, is he was wicked and God took him out. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, kind of a, along the lines of a Levite marriage, we don't have the instructions on Levite marriage yet in Genesis, but obviously something like that is going on. There's an understanding that uh, the next brother should raise up children through his sister-in-law, and those children will probably be to support her, um, but he's a wicked man, and he is unwilling to do that. He's willing to, to engage in sexual relations with her, but not to give her children. God kills him too. Judas says, mm, I'm not going to give my third son. He knows that. He deceives Tamar. He says, go live in your father's house. And when he's old enough, you can have him. It becomes very clear that's not going to happen. What's really interesting is that Tamar, this is, I mean, if you think about it, if Judah was Joseph and in Potiphar's house, yeah, we'd have a totally different story. I mean, that's one of the yeah. great contrasts. You see Joseph in the next chapter, how different he is from Judah, because Tamar, his daughter-in-law, knows this. If I dress up like a prostitute and go hang out in a village along the route, my father-in-law will, you know. I, yeah, the, the fact that she's that confident tells you everything you need to know about Judah. Yeah. And, and so Judah uh, conceives children through his daughter-in-law, unbeknownst to him. And when he discovers that she is pregnant three months later, he's quite delighted. He says, bring her out. Let's have her burned. But he had left with her his... Uh, basically his credit card and his driver's <laughs> license. You yeah, know, I mean, the ancient right. equivalent of those things. And, and it's very interesting because Jude, so to get right down to the, why this is here, Judah is the foremost voice in the selling of his brother and in the deceiving of his father. And I talked about that last week. He, he sends the, the blood dipped colored yep. robe to his father and says, uh, 
do you recognize this? To whom does this belong? The very same line that Tamar uses when she sends out his, his staff and his seal and says, I am pregnant by this man. Do you recognize these things? And at that point, Judas says, she's more righteous than I. And uh, the, the, there's no burning at the stake. Uh, Judah never has relations with her again. Hold on to Tamar for a second because she appears in a very interesting place. But what's interesting is we really see a transformation in Judah so yeah. that 20 years later, his is the foremost voice uh, when he finally meets up with Joseph. And Joseph, in a ruse, says, well, I'm going to hold Benjamin here in prison because he stole from me. And, and, and Judah says, no, take me. He's willing to step into that place. And, and we just see a transformation in Judah. Judah becomes the, the one through whom the, the messianic line will pass. And what's really interesting when you get into the genealogies of Jesus that Matthew records, Matthew lists four women. And when you think of the women he could have listed, like Sarah or Rebecca or, yeah. uh, you know, those aren't the women he lists. The first woman he lists is Tamar. Uh, who had Perez and Zara, the twin boys, uh, through a semi-incestuous relationship with her father-in-law when she was dressed up as a prostitute. Um, and he, all of the women he lists, uh, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, um, and Ruth, uh, all of them, for one reason or another, would be considered undesirable in a list. And I think yeah. that's intentional um, in, in showing us who Jesus is and what he comes to do. So, Mark, let me ask you, I, I'm curious, uh, I was I enjoyed listening to you talk uh, last week about the story of Jacob's conversion. Um, would you say that this is Judah's conversion story? Yeah, I, the Old Testament is really interesting because in the New Testament we have a a, a fairly clear cut idea of of what conversion looks like. Yeah. You know, um, and in the Old Testament, uh, conversion still happens. There's still that moment where the person eyes are open where they suddenly recognize and realize I'm a sinner. Yeah. God is gracious. And, and, and I do think that this is the place uh, you, if you wanted, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of necessarily circling a, a date in my calendar and saying that was the moment I was converted. Some people can do that. Um, but I, I do think that for Judah, that would probably be the date he would circle and say on that day, things changed. I suddenly became aware of how wretched I was. And there's a lot you can learn there about the process. Uh, and by the way, even the Jewish rabbis uh, recognize this as a significant spiritual moment in Judah's heart. They don't necessarily use the word conversion. But for example, they teach that they, they bring out that same point that you brought out about the goat. Um, I, I had a line somewhere, I can't find it now, but where in, in the, uh, one of the rabbis said uh, in his commentary on this passage, by, your, by the blood of a goat, you deceived your father by the blood of a goat you were deceived by Tamar. Uh, meaning this is an incident where God is sort of paying us in our own coin. He's showing us our sin. He's, he's you know, causing us to see what we've done to others so that we, we come to that place of true repentance. And, and then, you know, as you mentioned, Judah has that exclamation. He says in verse 26, she is more righteous than I, right? That's, that's a declaration of sin. Um, and he did not know her again. There's a fruit of repentance. And then another fruit of repentance, again, in the Joseph story, he's, he's now offering his life as a ransom for his brother. And he becomes, in that sense, a fit ancestor for Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great story. i just add one note. Yeah. You're talking about ancestor of Jesus. And, and Mark mentioned it. These, 
are kind of an undesirable group of people, so-called. But even Judah, from the line that Jesus came, just just the fact that this is the Judah <laughs> that yeah. Jesus came from, I, I just find it very interesting. And this is an old hat thing to say, but one of the reasons why the Bible is true is because it's realistic. Yeah. There's it the makes heroes no attempt not. to create heroes, does it? <laughs> David, for example, the one we love after the Lord's own heart, would be legally uh, under the ban of probably murder. Yeah. Rape. And and rape, yeah, under our standards, anyways. And I still I still yeah. think in biblical standards it was wrong. They yeah. might use different terminology, but sure, it's just fascinating that I think the Bible is wise and true, and this is one example of that. Yeah, absolutely. If you were writing this story as a missionary document, you would not include Genesis thirty-eight, <laughs> right? Like, a missionary update. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, meaning if, if if our job was just to try to get as many people as we could to like Jesus. Uh, this story would not be in the Bible, probably, or maybe it would, because maybe it, you know, it, it helps us understand that Jesus enters into the stories of really bad people. But well, it certainly wouldn't, wouldn't, it doesn't come naturally to mind that, hey, we should take one of the patriarchs and include that time they slept with a prostitute. Um, a daughter-in-law prostitute. Yeah, like that's yeah. gross. But you um, know, Paul, again, you, you mentioned and prefaced it with Mark about how should pastors or parents. Yeah. Again, I keep going back to Paul in, in Corinthians. He told the Corinthian church that these things were left for you. That's I, right. I think there's a great, if you've got teenagers, like there are consequences. Yeah. This is a living example. When you feed your impulses, it never works out the way you, you think it's going to work out. That's right. Um, there's a reason why. And God, God will bring it back. Care on who you. you sleep with. Like, you know, yeah. uh, was it Dawkins that, that the atheist that said, you know, uh, accuse God, like, why would a God or a cosmic God care about our genitalia? Well, this is why yeah, a cosmic God has a plan for, for humanity. It's a good plan. Yeah. And when you trust him and yet the gospel comes into play, you've got a merciful, gracious God yeah. who then comes and he's the hero. Yeah. But I think for parents, this is a golden opportunity to take yeah. your old Testament and say, let me show you drama, impulse, regret, you know, all of this stuff. It's all there. And when you feed your sexual impulses, it never pays off the way the world says it's going to. Yeah. That's good. not even add, you probably know this better than I do, but the more you get on in life, the more that you see that these sins are not some other world in the Old Testament that never get repeated today. Like this is not, right. I mean, maybe some of the unique uniqueness of the situation is odd, but these are things that happen all the time, similar anyways. And yep. it's not just kind of this weird other world of sin. It's your friends. Once you hit, once you hit 30, this is like true of your friend groups, right? <laughs> or at least well, I, I've said to people many times that Genesis that the, there is like the Jerry Springer of the old testament i mean yeah, you could never turn this into a, a movie not not it would have to be r-rated or better that's right. yeah. not one you could show at church at least yeah that's right not one you could show a youth group yeah, yeah. yeah but no, it sure right. does preach it sure does preach it sure does I, well i've pre i love preaching the gospel from this story i mean yep. it is interesting because as i said i've got kids on a, a wide range like right now my kids run from nine to 23 and, and they all happen to be around the table right now so this is a story that works great with teenagers. Um, it's, you know, there's some awkward moments with the nine-year-old. Um, but uh, yeah, it, and it preaches the gospel to men. I've, I've preached this as a gospel presentation yep. to men on multiple occasions. Yeah, right on. All right, well, uh, before we leave column one, I want to hit another um, theme if we can. Really interesting thing that comes up again and again and again in the Bible, but I just think it's worth talking about because as evangelicals, we have this sort of awkward allergy to dreams and dreams are all over the story. So in Genesis 37, which we talked about last week, 
uh, young teenager Joseph has a dream. Whether it was a good idea for him to share that with his brothers or not is is another issue. But he but he had the dream, and it turned out to be accurate. Uh, and then again, uh, in just in Genesis forty, he's in jail now uh, in Egypt, and he's able to interpret the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. And then, of course, most significantly for his story, in Genesis forty one, he's able to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and by means of the interpretation actually ascends and becomes the viceroy of of uh, egypt and then that almost exact same pattern is repeated in daniel's life um in daniel's life he's promoted to the viceroy position in babylon because the king there has a dream that he can't remember he knows that it was significant he knows it disturbed him but he can't remember the details and he wants somebody to tell him the dream and the interpretation so daniel prays he ends up having the same dream god tells him what he what it means he goes to the king tells him the dream and the interpretation becomes the viceroy of Babylon. So dreams are all over the Bible uh, in the Old Testament. And then it's not as though once you switch to the New Testament, they disappear. First two chapters of Matthew, the uh, first two chapters of the New Testament are filled with people having dreams. And, and so I guess the question I'm asking is, what do we do with that? Um, dreams, good, bad? Are they from God? Are they from the devil? What do we do with, with dreams? Brother Wyatt, why don't you get us started with that? I think you're right. I mean, in the New Testament, this doesn't this doesn't stop. However, you want to word it, even like the Book of Revelation, whatever that is, is a vision of something yeah. beyond a regular experience. So, I guess the way I think about it is that God rules everything by His providence. There's ordinary and unordinary providence. So, Paul in Acts 16 can want to go somewhere, then the Spirit says, "Don't go to Asia Minor or the province of Asia." So he doesn't. Daniel has all these events. So, I think what I want to say about dreams in general is, that, in general, is I think that we can admit. But the way in which God normally works, ordinarily works, is through prayer, through Bible reading, through the standard works that he asks, asks us to do. But I don't really think we have to exclude the possibility that you could have an unordinary experience of God. <laughs> I don't think we have to say that can never happen. I, I just think that we need to be careful that we don't look and, and pursue the unordinary things that God doesn't command us to seek. He commands us to seek him in his word, through prayer, all these kinds of ways. And hey, if something happens, it happens in my view, but that's not something we should necessarily focus on. So don't I seek it, but, but, but don't dismiss it. Is that what you're saying? Don't dismiss it. Yeah. And I think yeah. we also need to, I would just caution this way. Any experience that we have can be good and right, but we always need to match it by something that's even clearer, which is the word of God's scripture. Yeah. I think that's important. I mean, even Joseph, yeah, he gets his dream in, in Genesis 37, but he might unwisely use that dream yeah, exactly when right. he talks to his brothers. So, okay, he ha maybe had this dream from God, or he did, but then he's using it unwisely, in my opinion, anyways, that's how I understand it. So that's all I would say is, look, let's pursue the ordinary things that God commands us to pursue. Let's not exclude the possibility that God uses unordinary means to, to draw us to himself, to do whatever, uh, but let's focus on the main thing. Yeah, I like that. I like what you said, basically, a dream could be from God, and you could still interpret it wrongly and apply it sinfully. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's helpful right there do you guys want to jump in on that sure i mean biblically speaking in the new testament especially we have a couple places where uh the apostle paul and the apostle john both of them instruct the church to test the spirit right or to test the um, um test everything paul says in first thessalonians 5 21 test everything hold fast to what is good and where where i get a little bit concerned every once in a while you guys are pastors and you've maybe had it happen before where somebody calls you up and said this happened to me just a couple weeks ago i had a dream and you were in it 
Yeah, I don't like that. I, go, I don't like that as the beginning of a phone call either. Yeah, I'll be honest. I, I go, okay, don't call me and say that. You know, tell me the dream. <laughs> I, I, I had the guy. I said, tell me the dream. I'll write it down. Um, I'll put that in the back. Uh, but I'm not about to go out and and make massive changes because you had a dream. I'm going to yeah. test it and, and why it said it. I mean, open open the word. And this kind of works in uh, when when it comes to. Um, uh, I don't want to open a can of worms, but when it comes to prophetic words and stuff yeah. like that, there, there's a distinct difference between, you know, the Old Testament prophetic word that is, uh, that is universal and, and, and eternal, that yeah. is a scripture level event, and a dream that you might have where God might give you some insight into something that you've been working through, but that should only be one factor that you, that you bring in. This is yeah. not a scripture yeah. level well event here. Yeah, it's interesting to me, you know, I sort of feel you've heard me say this before. I'm always worried about evangelical overreactions because it seems to be something we're very good at. Prior to the charismatic movement in the 20, late 20th century, it, reformed and evangelical writers mentioned dreams without any embarrassment. Uh, Luther talks about how one time his wife had a dream, Katie had a dream uh, that he was going to be waylaid by robbers on the on the road that he was going to take to some town. And so as a result, he went a different way and 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 was saved. Um, and then John Bunyan talks about dreams all the time as well. So these are, I mean, as a Baptist guy, those are like my two go-to role models. And they they both talk that way. What, but you don't, our guys don't talk that way anymore because we're afraid of being lumped in with the, you know, the Kenneth Copelands of the world. I, Can I just I think, add to that? As a, as a weird Baptist guy, some of my heroes, like Augustine of Hippo or Gregory of Nazianzus. You are, you are, are weird. Totally comfortable. I, I, was just, I just want to affirm you. In yeah, I, just, I also Baptist. want to affirm that. I want to hey, agree with Baptist that dream. Human. If you dream that, I'm on board with that dream. <laughs> That is a word from the Lord. I'm just noted this is a, this is a regular throughout the church history. This is a regular thing that happens. People yeah. feel or a special pull from the Spirit, have dreams. Nobody's questioning that as wild, but the Word of God is central, authoritative, yes. and most clear. Exactly. And therefore, whatever is less clear, like a dream, in my opinion, is less clear. Yeah. You just go to the Word of God, compare it. Is your dream say to go kill someone? Like it's obviously yeah. wrong, right? Like that's it's that's from the devil. Totally false. Yeah, I, I often I've made the analogy to because I've had, you know, if you've been pastoring for 20 some odd years, you've had people come to you with dreams many times. And I always say to people, think of it this way. You know, it's 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 like your your home cable system. Uh, God knows how to patch into that. And so does the devil. So just just be aware of that. If somebody patches into your cable system and sends you a message um, could be from God, could be from the devil. So just, you know, test everything. Take it to scripture. Yeah. But for our readers and our uh, that are going through the RMM, just to help them understand too, right? Like one, we, we talk about this. So we're talking about the, the final authority is always the word of God. Yeah. And when you're reading this and we're like a lot of the passages we're doing right now is narrative. So you're looking in on people, like even with Joseph, Joseph, we all read it. And I think we think that, you know, Joseph must've told everybody, no, this was personal between God and Joseph and Joseph reacted to this on a very personal level. Um, we, we get the insights in on people's lives, um, but sometimes because, and I think you said it perfectly, Paul, that because of uh, the charismatic rise, we are so paranoid about words we use and expressions, but the bottom line is the word of God is there to show us and tell us what has been happening, and yet we have the completed canon of scripture, and so 
God is God's word is the final authority and don't, yeah. don't worry about it too much to either extreme. Yeah, exactly. It's it, to believe in the sufficiency of scripture is to believe that God doesn't need to send you a dream to, to tell you right. what to do in a situation. If you're not sure whether you should take that job or you're not sure whether you should marry that girl, th there's a verse for you. Now, I mean, God, God could encourage you one way or the other with, with a dream, but take, you know, take that to the verse uh, for confirmation. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's move into um, our other column of Old Testament readings this week in Job. Um, as I mentioned last week when we inter introduced Job, Job begins with two pretty easy to understand chapters, and it ends with a, a really easy to understand chapter. And then in between, there is a really long dialogue where most of the meat is in, in terms of the, the, the teaching on the, the meaning of suffering, uh, the source of wisdom, the value of human beings in the world. That's where all the theology is, all the meat is. But with the added complication uh, that you can't be sure whether who's telling the truth and who isn't, because you got to wait till the end when God shows up and says, well, these people were right, these people were wrong. So you, you've kind of got to be very active in your listening. Calvin gave us that great key for understanding the middle section. He says, we have to note that in the whole dispute, Job maintains a good case and his adversary maintains a poor one. Now there is more that Job maintaining a good case pleads it poorly and the others bringing a poor case, case plead it well. When we shall have understood this, it will be to us as it were a key to open the whole book. So Calvin is saying Job is right. He's fundamentally right. His suffering is not related to any particular sin in his life. But he says some things he shouldn't. You can't take everything Job says and stick it on a mug. Uh, like some of the stuff he says, he's rebuked for, you know, because it's it's too much. Um, but it's it's you know he's in pain. So, uh, but he's he's right, but not necessarily wise in everything he says. His friends, on the other hand, they're wrong. They they are fundamentally committed to the idea that Job brought this on himself. However, they say a lot of really true, wise, useful things about God and about sin and, and about people. So you're constantly having to weigh all of this to figure out what you should, what you should do with it. Uh, so it's complicated. As I've said many times before, Job rewards the careful reader. So Brother Stephen, as a careful reader, what did you see in the book of Job this week that you just want to draw out for yeah. uh, those who are maybe reading this for the first time? Well, I, again, I love this. And this is one yeah. of the reasons I'm, I'm going to give a big shout out to the RMM thing in a minute, but th this is so much a reality. And as we said last week, um, I made the comment that God has two types of discipline and we miss this often. Yeah. You know, we're all familiar with the idea of corrective discipline. We're very unfamiliar and we don't spend enough time understanding formative discipline. And herein lies the issue and challenge for Job and his friends. In fact, if, if you, it's why you should read the whole Bible and why, again, I want to give a shout out to the RMM because it's laid out so well, because the primary assumption of the ancient Near East is that God does good things to us when we've done good yep. and bad things to us when we do bad. And let's fast forward to February of 2021. We still struggle with this today. And I would say Christians struggle with this today, right? Yeah. And so when you take now chapters four to 10, I would also say, make sure you're always keeping one to three in context, because at the end of chapter two, these friends have come, they've made an appointment. They want to come and comfort and encourage Job. They feel bad for their friend. And where it kind of all goes off the rails is when Job finally speaks in chapter three. And then I would actually submit that chapter three might be one of the most emotional 
laments uttered by human lips in all the Bible. Yeah. As Job just cries out, why and why bother? But strangely enough, the friends go from sympathy and encouragement and comfort reacting to this third chapter when Eliphaz and all the guys start to talk. It's like they all of a sudden are ticked at what Job says. Yeah. Right. One, one comment. And let me just say for the average Christian. They came to hear his confession. Absolutely. Right. 100%. Christopher Ash's book from Preaching the Word, that commentary, a great little book. Mm -hmm commentary if somebody wants to get this but he makes a comment he goes while job's appearance made his friends sad his words made them angry <laughs> and then you have this back and forth and back and forth and this is the backdrop job is depressed i might even say in modern terms he's suicidal oh yeah and and Close. their only hope as far as they're concerned job simply needs to admit you've done something wrong yeah own it and God will forgive you. Hence why in chapter four, when Eliphaz first, he almost compliments Job. He's very, Job, you've helped many a person. Yeah. So dude, help yourself. Yeah. yeah. And, and what I find, again, as you talked about Calvin, um, his opening statement is absolutely amazing, but he's dead wrong. And I really believe this boils down to this, because by the time you get to chapter 10, and here Job sounds somewhat like the psalmist, right? He's appealing, he's questioning, but then he goes a step too far in chapter 10. Yeah. He actually asks God, almost accuses, do you know what it's like to be human? Right? Like in chapter 10, he he dares, I, this is where I think he actually crosses the line. And I almost think it's it's hints of Peter in, in Matthew 16, like, you know, Lord, listen, I know you got a plan but you, you don't understand what, what we're waiting. Like, let me tell you what is really important. And I think Job almost thinks it's his job to correct God, to remind God of what it means to be God. And so don't lose the irony. Yeah. Because one case is saying when you suffer, it's always because you've done something bad. In other words, you can never be so good that you don't meet the holiness standard of God. And you can never be so bad because what I find, frankly, amusing in the friends is the level of accusation that comes now after the boys get upset by chapter three, they, they, the level by which God is punishing Job. It is amazing to me that these fellows don't know what Job did wrong <laughs> if their theology. And that's one of the things I, I find fascinating for our readers. Understand this. Christopher Ash does a great job with this. The theology of these three, three friends is very similar to, I think, a faulty theology of Christians today. A, God is absolutely in control. Well, we, we yeah, give head yeah. knowledge to that. Sure. God is absolutely just and fair. That's where I think we stumble. Therefore, he always punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness. Therefore, if I suffer, I must have sinned and I'm being punished justly for my sin. That's yeah. their theology. Yeah. What's missing is the cross. Yeah, that's right. They can, I mean, in chapter one and two, God says there could not be a guy more good than this fella, yet his goodness still does not save him. And yet the assumption is he must have done something bad. And that's where I think the beauty of launching into the New Testament. But I do find the whole fascinating. These guys are upset because Job is pleading his ignorance and his innocence. Job's upset and he crosses that line and people need to understand it because 
the, in the next couple of weeks, your readings are going to be, you would expect God to rub his back. There, there, big fella. I know. Yeah. Let me come. But because I think he crosses the line here in chapter 10 and says, do you know what it's like to be human? And don't miss this. He's going to send the second person of the Trinity to be human who can honestly claim what Job is claiming. I have done nothing wrong. Yeah. And still suffer. Yeah. Right. It's beautiful for me. It gets me excited. Yeah, I know for sure. Any, any, you guys want to pull anything else out that just little threads kind of like reaching down and pulling something up and say, Hey, did you see this? Either you guys can jump in or you can say no, but you can't just look at me. I like the question that Job asks in chapter nine and verse two. Yeah. How can a person be justified before God? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Job's speeches are filled with awesome questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. And it, uh, it gets answered. Right. Yeah. One of the, what, another great questions in Job seven, I wrote down a few of these great questions. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment. Job seven, 17 to 18. That's a good question too. Um, Job, what he can't figure out is, okay, since I haven't sinned, I don't believe this is punishment for sin. This must be like God probing me, testing me. Why do you want to know me this intimately? That's a good question too. And it's a tragedy really because he never arrives at the right conclusion. Yeah, not until the end. <laughs> right. God shows right. Up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A great example of how uh, just how you want to read this carefully. There's just some little nuggets in there. I'll give you an example from something that was said by somebody other than Job. We, we're usually safer with Job stuff. Uh, like if you pick up a first time Bible reader's journey through Job, all the Job speeches are highlighted. You know, not, not too many of the uh, <laughs> the Eliphaz uh uh, speeches are highlighted, but this is from, this is from Eliphaz in Job chapter five. It is, that's Eliphaz, isn't it? Job five. Uh, yeah. Yes. Eliphaz. He says this resentment kills a fool <laughs> and envy slays the simple. That's Job five too. Well, that's true. That's I mean, I, you could find a, a very similar proverb to that. I'm sure uh, resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. That's true. It's true in principle. It's just false in application. That's not what has happened to Job, um, but it's true. So that's what you have to do with, with the stuff these, these guys say. It, you can say, you put a little note in your Bible that says true in principle, wrong in application. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that'll, and that'll for, give you for anybody one that's, third of the book of Job. And anybody that's looking at the gospel, when we have it in our, especially our Canadian culture, yeah. Job screams out, you will never be good enough that you don't need the mercy and grace of God. And you are never so bad that you cannot experience and receive the grace and mercy of God. Yeah. In both cases, Job and the friends both miss it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely they miss right. It from both extremes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a great gospel line. If you, if you want to get some practice spotting gospel turn signals or indicators, Job nine thirty two to 35 mm -hmm. is one of the best of yeah. these. Job says, for he is not a man as I am that I might answer him. So he's saying, God's so holy. I don't, man, I don't know. I feel innocent, but I don't know how I could ever stand in his presence and make my case For he's not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together for there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Yeah. Let him take away his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him for I am not so in myself. So Job has, he has a, a big view of God. He knows that God is big. He knows that God is holy, that he dwells in unapproachable light. And he's thinking, man, I, I, I just want to get before God and talk to him, find out what's going on. But I would die. If, if I got into God's presence, I would just die. 
uh, cause, cause I'm a sinner. I might not have sinned in this case, but I'm a sinner. So he's like, Oh man, I need like somebody who could go to God for me and who could come to me for God. It's like, yeah, you need Jesus. You now, need a mediator between God and man. Uh, exactly right. First Timothy two, five to six. Right. I mean, Job's hope becomes our faith. Yeah. And as you said, that little line, that's why I love in those first seven verses of Job 10, where he actually articulates, God, if only you were human, if yeah. only you knew what it was like to be human, and yet God's had a plan. He, yeah. He's going to be human. And Job, yeah. he'll be better than you. <laughs> yeah, one of the best conversations. To, so it's, you know, it, Job is a, it's like a tennis match. It's mm. trying to pull these threads together. I mean, I've said to people many times, you got to read Job five or six times to, to really be able to track all the, all the conversation threads. But there's a great conversation thread about the worth of a man, the worth of a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get Job's question. Uh, I think it's Bildad at one point. Yeah, it's Bildad who says man is but a maggot, right? Like he's basically <laughs> saying God doesn't, God doesn't, how much do you think God cares about us, right? Like right. we're maggots. And it's like, well, no, I don't think that's quite right. In fact, Job is saying, I think we matter too much to God. It's unbearable how much we matter to God. So there's this fantastic conversation about what is the worth of a man. But again, you have to kind of read, it's all over the place. Little flippets and snippets of it in like eight different speeches. You got to, uh, so you have to read it like four or five times to really pull it out. But yeah. It's I will tell again that that yeah. commentary from Preaching the Word by Christopher Ash, yeah. very readable, very devotional. If anybody's that. listening or watching this and they're like, man, I really want to dig into Job, get that. That's a great, easy read for the for the new Christian, the average Christian that just wants to get a little bit more and have a help along the way. I found the Anderson in, so oftentimes I'm, I'm surprised by how useful the Tyndale Old Testament commentary sets mm. are because it's short, right? And it doesn't have yeah. a lot of technical stuff in it. So, you know, you, you can't use them for your seminary papers, but uh, I just, I found the one on uh, Job to be absolutely tremendous as a, as a simple read. I think it's like 210 pages. And then of course the huge one by Trumper Longman is awesome as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so some good resources there. All right. Uh, moving into the new Testament. We, uh, we've been reading through Gospel of Mark, and uh, this week we came to Mark 9. Interesting little story here, Mark 9, 38 to 41. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So story is there's, there's a guy and he's, he's out there. He's obviously following Jesus in some sense, but he's not following the disciples. He's not part of the, the inner circle as it were. And so the disciples stop him, you know, he's operating without a license uh, and, and Jesus rebukes them. Uh, RT France has a great comment here. He says, there are indeed, opponents and outsiders as we see repeatedly in the rest of the gospel but disciples are called on to be cautious in drawing lines of demarcation they are to be a church not a sect so how does that work exactly how do we draw lines there have to be inside and outside so how do we do that without descending into cults and tribes how does that work i'll just throw that out to the panel generally Mark, you're nodding your head the most aggressively. So why don't we start with you? <laughs> I should stop doing that. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I really think, you know, because when, when it comes down to, uh, I think 
the four of us are all Baptists of some sort of stripe. Um, you know, where we, I, I guess where we place the emphasis, um, when, when I encounter, let's say uh, my Presbyterian brothers down the road, um, you know, I meet them, my, my, my first take is not, uh, you know, and this, this defines what kind of Baptist you are, everybody who's not a Baptist must not be saved. That's not my first take. My, my first take is these guys have got a Bible. Um, these guys have got some history, um, you know, but let's, let's examine a little bit and find out where they're at because not every Baptist pastor is a regenerate Christian and not every Presbyterian is unregenerate. Um, sects though, I think come uh, when you, you my, my experience with sects is, is they tend to put emphasis on weird stuff. Yeah. Um, they, they just get sideways, you know, and I would draw a line between a sect and a cult, I think, um, where, where, you know, a cult has an entire system that is wrong, whereas a yeah. sect, you know, might have certain bits and pieces in there, but they've, they've just taken one thing and they've gone way out in this particular direction, you know, the food laws or something. They, they're, they're insistent legalistic on, you, you, we still don't eat ham you know, uh, you're getting into sects. Okay, I'll stop nodding and let somebody else talk now. I, I maybe just add to that. I mean, I think that's a, a good way to think about it. If you think, if you're centered on the central things, God, Christ, the gospel, it's often hard to go off the rails. But if you're centering on something way out in left field that has a one verse in the Bible somewhere, like baptism for the dead, that's all you do every day, that gets weird. And one illustration of this, I think, is in Philippians 1, uh, verses uh, 15 and following. Paul says, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. Why does it matter? Only in every way, whether from false motives or from true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. And so on. Now, I don't think he's excusing bad actors, but I think he is saying, look, as long as the gospel is preached, it's better than if the law of Moses is preached as a means of salvation or something like that. Mm. I don't think he excuses this, of course, the bad behavior happening, but it's useful that he's, he's a gospel guy. Mm -hmm. And so I think you got to work from the inside out. You affirm God, Christ, the gospel. Then even if you're a bit odd, like I'm, I'm, I'll shake your hand and we'll hang out. But if you're affirming the one verse in the Bible, somewhere weird in Job say <laughs> that is like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's your thing. I don't, I don't know. Like what, that's not what the Bible emphasizes. I think we need to, to understand too, right? Let's bring this into our 21st century world for our viewers and our listeners. Um, in the, in, in it seems to me in the New Testament, as soon as you showed up and you, you named the name of Christ, the assumption was we are brothers and sisters until you said or did something that, that proved otherwise. Somewhere along the line, it almost got, you have to prove you're a part of us, then you're in. And then it's almost like we never, ever get rid of you. <laughs> right? Like, uh, you, you know, whereas in the first, now, again, going back to what, what you said, Wyatt, I'd say the other prison epistle, Ephesians, Paul lays this out in, in Ephesians 4, right? That we're to walk in a manner worthy, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then he gives us seven ones, which I, mm -hmm. to me, are the seven essentials, right? One body, one spirit, yeah. one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. And I think that if that's where our focus is, 
then this is what Jesus was teaching the disciples in Mark was that guys don't think you have the exclusivity on truth simply because you're my inner circle and, and stuff like that. Just like he said to Elijah, right? When he was spiritually depressed and he's like, I'm the last one serving you. And he goes, no, no, I got 7,000 over here, buddy, that haven't bent the knee to bail. Yeah. I yeah. think when we start getting inclusive, this, this, this actually see the deceptiveness of Satan. This will lead to depression. When you think you're the only one that holds on to truth, you will easily get discouraged because yeah. your eyes are off God now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think I'm kind of like a daisy and you know uh, why you, used, you talked about as long as we agree at the center, I mean, that's, that's what I mean by the daisy. So each of the, the petals on the daisy, if they're truly connected at the center, yeah, they, they may be pointing in a few different directions at the edges, but if, if they're mm. truly, you know, connected at the center, if, if they agree that Jesus Christ is Lord, I mean, think of how ecumenical some of the verses in the new Testament sound. I mean, I, I stumble over this Ro Romans 10, nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are, those are some pretty ecumenical verses, right? So if, so if I confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and I realize I got to understand what that means, right? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So I can't say that Jesus is my Lord if I don't take his word as, as the word of God to me. So there's, there's some content to that. But if I can confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and if I believe he rose from the dead, it sounds like the New Testament expects that, that I'll be received as a believer. Uh, even if, you know, because I see through a glass darkly, I've got some weirdness at, at the edges. Um, that's, and it sounds like that's what Jesus is saying here too. Like, hey, this guy's out there working in my name. He, he's probably got some stuff to improve on and some, some issues to clarify. Uh, but let's not be, let's not be censorious. Um, I, and it, it's interesting in my, you know, I've Mark and I, we, we've been a minister around the same amount of time, probably Stephen, you know, similar or even longer. It, it, it looks to me that over the last 27 years, there has been an increase in censoriousness within the evangelical community. Like when I started out, evangelicals were almost on the verge of like blobbing together into, into one contentless group. You know, uh, it, I, you know, I remember as a youth pastor being a part of discussions about whether or not all the youth groups in Mississauga should coalesce and rent space together and run a common program on Friday. So we, we were on the danger of overdoing ecumenicism. But now it feels like, I mean, it's hard to find fellowship with anybody because everybody's excommunicating everybody over the most minor details of, of theology. So, you know, where do we draw the line here? How much is, how much um, theological precision is too much? Or uh, is, is there a way we can be theologically precise without being censorious and sectarian? It yes. <laughs> okay. Why do you want yes. to you go, Mark? I just think that's a great question. It, the answer yeah. needs to be yes, but Mark, it, I want it, to hear it your depends opinion. on what you want to do. I mean, yeah. in, in our local community, every year, the, the local ministerial has a day of prayer in the center of town. And, uh, you know, I, I'm able to uh, agree enough and cooperate enough that I say, I will come and do this thing um, with people that I, I would absolutely be unwilling to run a vacation Bible school with. Right. Or to yep. set up a, a summer program or, or because, you know, so there, there has to be a certain level of agreement um, if, if you're going to if you're going to partner closely with yeah. somebody. And, and if, if 
if you're saying, hey, let's have a public prayer service to pray for the mayor, well, I, I can probably pray after the Catholic guy and before the Anglican guy. Yeah, yeah. Theological triage is a real useful category, isn't it? Yeah. Like it, when it comes to how, what we can do with, with people on what basis of agreement. Um, but I would say we shouldn't be excommunicating people over our particular preferences. And I would just add like, and maybe I should first... say excommunicating because that implies from a church. How about anathematizing? We should not be anathematizing people, um, you know, because they have a different mode of baptism or because they eat pork and you don't, uh, or because they have a different attitude towards civil disobedience than you do or something along those lines. Yeah, I would just add, I, I doubt Paul would want to preach while some of the things are happening in first Corinthians that he describes were happening so right. with Mark's point. And yet he calls them saints. Right, right. right? Yeah, well said. And, and so I think there's a, there's a sense of holy and chastened love believes all things. We don't know the hearts of men like John 2.25, Jesus did. Right. Uh, he's God. First uh, Samuel 16.7, God knows the hearts. We don't. So we can trust people on the basis of their confession. We hope for the best. But I think we need to be careful that we don't cut off the body of Christ based on our preference or our kind of intuition, apart from any kind of public, easily accessible standard. Yeah, which is, um, in my view, denying the gospel, denying Christ, denying God. I think, Paul, too, we, we got to own as Christians what you described from the 80s to what you describe now. I find mm -hmm. it eerily um, tragic how much this is mirroring social media. Oh, 100%. You, you know, that, that yeah. this idea of being sectarian, I get in my own little bubble. I only coalesce around those that think and say and tweet and Facebook everything I do. And if you don't, you're my enemy. Yeah. Um, and no, and again, we've all, we're all on teams now. Right. What an opportunity, though, for the church yeah. to show the world something different. A hundred percent. Yeah. Really good. So, so for our readers, I just think, again, right, that yeah. humility and gentleness and patience. Yeah. Uh, good you words. Uh, looking at the, at the time there, we've got two things I want to hit. I don't know if we'll get them both. Let's try. So uh, we're getting into Romans. Romans, uh, we, we were into the meat of Romans this, uh, this past week. And uh, over the last couple of days, we read what I think you could argue is the greatest chapter in the New Testament, Romans 8, the hardest chapter in the New Testament, Romans 9, and the most debated chapter in the New Testament, Romans 11. So obviously, we should be able to cover that in six minutes. Um, <laughs> let me throw out a couple questions, and we'll just hit a few of them, and then save some time, because I, I, I want to push through one more issue. But here, here are my questions. I had one on Romans 8, 28. I'm going to save that because actually it comes up again in next week's readings when we get to the end of Genesis. So we'll, we'll hit that then. But here, here's the next question. Can a believer lose their salvation? Of course, I'm thinking about the golden chain in Romans 8, uh, 29. And then also Romans 8, 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in, in Christ Jesus. So can a believer lose their salvation? Uh, next question. Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? Romans 9, 13, what in the world's going on there? And then what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Romans eleven twenty six. 26. That's an extremely uh, controversial, much debated verse. All right. Anyone want to take a stab at any of those? Give us, give us your, uh, your 90 second take. Mark, you're laughing. You're nodding your head. You keep volunteering yourself. Go. All right. I know. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll take, uh, I'll take my favorite out of the three options that you've sure. thrown out there from, uh, uh, Romans 9, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. I, I think that is a is a verse that is a stumbling block for a lot of Christians. They go, yeah. why? 
why would God hate Esau? And, and I love to start out a Bible study with people with this verse and say, what's your question? That's always their question. Why would God hate Esau? And I said, you're asking the wrong question. The question you should be asking is, why would God love Jacob? Because Jacob is just as wretched as Esau. Esau is, a, is a, um, uh, an inheritance-despising uh, man who marries two Canaanite women, more or less despite his parents. And Jacob is a lying, scheming cheat. Neither one of these guys is worthy of love. God gives justice to all and mercy to some. This yeah. is a passage that teaches us about uh, God's unconditional election. It's not that God looks down at Jacob and Esau and says, well, Jacob's a little bit better, so I'm going to choose Jacob. Before they had ever done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, God chose Jacob. And, right. and so that whole, uh, and we don't have time to get into the love, hate, but that's what I think that's the most important thing for you to see on that particular passage. God chooses Jacob, not because he deserves it, but because of God's own purposes. No, that's good. Stephen, you want to yeah. choose the only thing I would add, I, the only thing I would add there in all of your questions, I think what we need to stand back and, and really wrestle with and for your, our viewers and, and the listeners as they read through the Bible Ultimately, your four questions boil down to, is God truly sovereign? Yeah. You know, so Romans 8, 28, all things do work because God is sovereign according to his plans, not according to our plans and how we do. Well, you're answering on. next week's question. R right. Okay. But <laughs> will all Israel be saved? Again, yeah. now there's some eschatological arguments here. Are you, are you dispensational? Are you covenantal? And so on and so forth. But the bottom line is, is God sovereign even over the nation of Israel? That what he began Philippians 1 6 he'll he'll perform it and yet in the plan of God everybody that God is going to be merciful to even for the nation of Israel that will be accomplished and nothing the gates of hell can't stand against it yeah. um you know the idea of can you lose your salvation well I mean for me the simple answer is no because you make God impotent if God is the one who saves me he's the one who saves me um, and so I think it creates an immense amount of humility and true converts, but it's also the basis of our accountability. If God has saved you, it will display itself. And so I, I you know, that's, that's the thing for me. Now I know what, you, I know what your answer is, but I want to make sure our listeners hear it. So are you saying that everyone who raises their hand at the campfire, uh, <laughs> night, uh, at, at camp, uh, on, on the Friday night, uh, raises their hand to accept Jesus, every single one of those people will, will enter uh, heaven's no. gates? No, and I would tell people to read Matthew 13 for the full breakdown of why that is, okay. which which they'll, they're going to get to. It's just, again, that word of the, the Matthew 13, people miss over this when they're arguing over the, the responses. The key word, Matthew's got some key words in it, and one of them is understood. Right. And, and of course, that's for, for us, for the four of us on this screen and people wanting this $50. That's why we believe in the perseverance of the saints. Right. Okay. So not everybody who shows initial enthusiasm is truly saved. Right. But there's the confusion. That's why I think we're arguing. People are arguing over that those people truly get saved and lose it. Right. We would say, no, a lot of people make professions. Right. But they've never, ever. Well, it was a D.L. Moody. One of my favorite things, somebody pointed out a guy drunken wandering down the street and they goes up and confronts Moody and says, look, Moody, there's one of your converts. And he says, you're absolutely right. It's one of mine. It's not one of God's. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, that's, that's well said. 
What? Uh, I think Stephen answered all the questions, but is there? <laughs> is there I don't think I, no, I, I like everything that's been uh, said. I mean, there's contextual things that are interesting about election in that passage. Jacob, he saw that. I mean, that's proving the prophecy from Genesis 25, citation yeah. from Malachi. So it's also helpful to look at look at what's actually going on in the larger argument. I think when it comes to when it comes to uh, once saved, always saved, that kind of language. I think if God begins a good work in you, He completes it. And so it's a parable of the sowers or the parable of the soils is really the practical answer. And we've already talked about that. The one thing I would say though, for an individual is if you doubt your salvation, but you say, I doubt it, but I want to turn to God. Uh, you're okay because you're trusting, you're turning to God and trusting the promise. And I think a lot of people who ask this and seriously struggle are the people who have sensitive consciences, con whatever <laughs> are sensitive, yeah. but in fact, because they're sensitive, they're actually turning to God. Yeah. And those are those who I would probably give the most comfort to is someone who never asked that question. I find now uh, just stage of life, stage of my church um, and the, and the season we've just come through with evangelicalism light, which, you know, which I think we would agree is what sort of youth ministry and children's ministry and church ministry in general was in the eighties and nineties. I find that I I'm answering this question now on behalf of parents who are worried about their kids. Right. So I'm talking to Bob and Susie Smith, whose um, 38 year old son raised his hand at camp when he was nine. Um, but then in his early twenties, uh, you know, got into all kinds of stuff and has shown no interest in Christ, um, you know, for the last 15, 16 years. And they're asking me is, is Jimmy saved? Um, he, you know, he did raise his hand at camp. That's, that's where I'm asking it. Uh, that's where I'm getting asked this, this question on a regular basis. And, and I, you know what, you just described my personal testimony. I was raised in a family. My parents ca yeah. came to Christ two weeks apart. I made a profession in my just early, early, well, like late double digits and uh, just like 10, 11. Yeah. But did not, I mean, it was a profession. I, I, I was told that I'd want to burn in hell. What, what 10 year old says, oh yeah, sign sure. me up for that. Right. Well, yeah. if you don't want to burn in hell, say this. And I did. And that was not, you know, I was not a Christian. And I remember I came to Christ when I was 21. And I remember phoning my mother to let her know that I had truly yeah. been converted by Jesus. And my mother tried to talk me out of it. <laughs> yeah, no, she really actively tried to tell me no, no, when you were 10. Yeah. I know. And, and, and what I would tell parents now, don't save your kids, don't unsave them, point them to Jesus and realize if they got a heartbeat, their story's not written yet. Yeah, well said. Good. That's really good. All right. Well, uh, that leaves us a couple minutes to, to hit Romans 13, uh, which our, our friends have uh, been working their way through. I think they would have read that yesterday. And uh, this is, or no, yeah, I guess yesterday I'm all tangled up, but <laughs> Romans 13 has certainly been the chapter of the hour. Um, in a sense, that's encouraging. It's great that we're all debating a, a chapter of the Bible. Uh, Romans 13, one to seven says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of who, the one who is in authority? Well, then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to God's wrath, to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are 
owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed all right well all that seems pretty clear to me seems like a, a a general rule or a general principle, as it were. Of course, there's the exception clause we'd want to point out, Acts 5.29. When the apostles were told not to preach in Jesus' name, they said we must obey God rather than men. So, seems, putting this all together, <clears throat> if the government tells you not to do something Jesus had told, has told you to do, or if they tell you to do something Jesus has forbidden you to do, then you say we must obey God rather than men. That seems pretty simple to me. Uh, but all the recent debate in evangelicalism in Canada around this chapter, around these verses, would, would seem to indicate that maybe we're missing something or maybe it's more complicated than we have let on. So help us understand that, panel. Uh, what's the current controversy around this chapter? Why is it so complicated? And how should our readers understand it? Hmm. You're nodding your head again, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to take first stab at this? Uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll grab a couple peripheral uh, issues here to kind of get us rolling and let these guys stab at the, at the center. Um, I distinctly, um, it, well, let me say this. Uh, because we live in a democracy, uh, there's a number of these things that are, that are the same as when Paul was living. Paul is living under a despot, yeah. um, you know, a, a Caesar. I can't remember which one he probably wrote under but i mean he, he's not a good guy uh, and he says be obedient you know god has put him in authority i think that same thing exists today you know god has put trudeau in authority god has put ford in authority i'm not right up on newfoundland there steve somebody's in authority there you but here's the thing you get to choose and while you need to be in subjection to them in a democracy you can be in subjection to them and you should be but you also have the ability to speak and say, I don't like this. I think this is wrong. I'm opposed yeah. to this. I'm going to do it. Uh, and I, I think we need to separate those two um, distinctly between God calls me to be obedient to those who are in authority, especially on issues where he hasn't given me a direct command to the contrary. But at the same time, I also have the ability to speak and say, I think this is wrong. But the thing I would want to really point to is... Um, uh, there at the end, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is yeah. owed. You owe respect and honor, whether you voted for or like the prime minister or the premier or your mayor, uh, they are owed respect and honor. So, you know, dispense with the name calling. Uh, th th that's completely inappropriate for a Christian to have anything to do with. Oh, well, that's great. Uh, well said. I, well said, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And and that to me seems so straightforward. I mean, it, I, I'm having a hard time understanding the controversy. I don't, I haven't heard anybody say, uh, you know, because of Romans 13, we must all nod our heads and agree with everything Prime Minister Trudeau or Premier whoever says. I haven't heard anybody say that. If they did say that, I would, I would disagree strongly. Um, so I think we're on this, we must be on the same page there, but it is interesting how often you will get pushback when you say, make your democratic contribution, make your voice heard, but do it with respect and honor. I'll be honest with you. I, I've been getting some pushback for, I wrote, you know, wrote that article, the Carson rule, which I thought was, you know, not a controversy. I didn't expect any feedback on that article. It's pretty straightforward. And yet people are arguing that no, no, no. They're, they're, you know, we, we have an obligation in a democratic society to, you know, stick it to the man and, you know, or 
to use kind language is somehow effeminate and weak. Hmm. Um, how, how do we get here? Well, again, I'll, two things I'll say to that, because I've been watching some of that interact play that you're referring to, yeah. um, Paul, online. And I will, I will say one, one of the most helpful things that was ever given to me, because I've seen people grabbing random verses and random displays. One or two times Jesus said something to Herod or said something to Pilate or whatever, whatever, as a, an excuse now for yeah, us. Je Jesus referred to Herod as a fox. Therefore, right. I can swear at the premier. Right. I'm you know, sure and, and so works. one last time I checked, none of us is Christ. Um, True. And, and the same Christ who said that also said, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Um, but a great little line mm -hmm. that was given to me was don't make the exception to the rule, the rule. Yeah. Um, and I think when you got to go searching scripture and you got a proof text to come up with your position, any serious student of the word of God knows that is not the way you approach God's word. Um, I think Mark said it also beautifully. Yeah. I think what we do, why we do it, and how we do it are all equally important. They're not. They're not in descending order of imp importance. Yeah. yeah, well said there too. And and I think that you know again, I I'm one. I, I do a daily devo here, down here. You know, trying to target my audience in St. John's. We're about to go into a two week circuit breaker. I do not agree with everything our government's doing. I communicate regularly with my chief medical officer, my local politicians, but I do not equate the fact that I got to go back to online services for two weeks, but because everybody else in my culture has to do this. They're not targeting just me. They're not telling me I can't worship. They're not telling me I can't preach. They're not telling me I can't love Jesus. Those are to me, if they told me you can't do this, yeah, I, I know what the answer is. They're asking me to do my part, which, by the way, it's a two-way street. If you're going to exercise your democracy in disagreement and protest, are you also going to exercise your democracy in being a team player of the democracy? Yeah. And we're the Christians that can lead the way in that. And all I keep going back to is sovereignty. If God is sovereign, and is he's he the ultimate author of this pandemic, is he not? <laughs> And I, I want to say, I mean, there is a place and historically there have been key figures, you know, I think of Wilberforce, you know, who had a, a political role, but I, I would really want to caution, especially pastors. I have over and over again had people um, because I, I have some, I have some fairly strong views on, on, on these things, <laughs> but uh, you know, I have people all the time. I get emails, I get calls. Hey, we would love for you to come and protest. And I say, I won't do it. I have no interest in, in being a political figurehead. I won't put a, I won't put a political sign on my yard because uh, I, I have a higher calling. Somebody and, and put one on my yard in the last election. And I immediately, I actually yeah. called my wife and said, could you take that off and stick it in the garage? Like that brings up another question. How involved in politics should pastors be? Hmm. Well, I'd like to see pastors as passionate about the word of God as some I've seen some pastors being passionate about politics. Yeah. Can I make a point as, as a lay person, not a pastor? Sure. Uh, when I'm on the internet, especially as, as a younger person or youngish person, now I'm getting old. I have kids, I guess. I can't pull that card anymore. You're, you're young to the three of us, brother. Okay, yes, fair enough. Yeah, younger yeah. relative to this discussion. Young, skinny, it's all there uh, for you. <laughs> <laughs> People under my age category, we, we live on the internet in different yeah. ways than maybe you might. And we see everything you as a pastor say. Mm -hmm. And I'm deeply concerned when I see Christian leaders mocking political leaders, memeing them, 
using unbecoming language. The Bible says show perfect courtesy to everyone as a general rule. There are exceptions where you might, you're going to use strong language. I'm not, no one's saying that like, right. come on. But as a lay person, it is in, how should I put this? If you want people to follow you, you can really destroy your credibility mm. by acting so poorly online in a way that you would never act in person because mm -hmm. in person you have accountability because you see my face, but online you just hit send. But if you're younger, you see the online world as equal to your real self. Yeah. And when you see that it is incredibly discouraging as a lay person. So mm -hmm. I would just say, maybe to encourage pastors, even though that's atypical for a lay person to do so like, yeah, maybe be, be involved in politics all you want, but be careful about what you say online because that is your ministry as well. You're a pastor 24 seven, even if you don't admit it, it's not just Sunday morning. Yeah. We imitate, we hear, and it hurts us or helps us no matter what you say, what you say. That's really well said. Yeah. yeah I, I, I've seen, you know, a couple brother pastors, and I'm not speaking specifically about anything happening right now. So don't try to connect the knots. This is actually from years ago. I've seen some brother pastors take themselves out of ministry by an over-interest in politics. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think and, under these conditions, have, it's possible we could do that again. You know, I, I have routinely um, refused, not just in the era of COVID, but through my entire ministry, to allow uh, um, political petitions to be circulated in the church. Um, I, I will speak on a political issue from scripture but I, I will not support a particular party. And part of that is because I know that I'm trying to reach some people who are voting differently than I am. And am I going to make the first stumbling block they come across politics? Yeah. No, the first stumbling block is going to be the cross. So I, I don't want to run up a banner and say, this church is all about this particular party, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. Well, and well you know said. what? And again, to make it all again, let's make it come full circle. For those that want to say that, you know, Jesus said Herod was a fox. This is the same Jesus that when Peter pulled his sword to defend and cut off the air, that Jesus stopped Peter, healed the man's ear and reminded him, don't you think I can call 12 legions of angels? Yeah. And don't forget, as he cried out those seven cries from the cross, the first person to confess Christ as the dead savior is a Roman centurion who says, truly, this was the son of God who has just overseen the death of Jesus. So here he is. He's looking at the, the son of God. He's just killed. And what's his hope that the son of God, he just killed is also the son of God who died for his sin. Yeah. And what does it profit of? So we get the prime minister to follow our, our version of science. Yeah. If the prime minister doesn't know Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. We got to do God's word, God's way mm. yeah, yeah. at the end of the day. Jesus didn't revile when he went across. So well, that, uh, that's a great place to end it. And uh, that's all the time that we have for today. So let's do that. We'll be back on February 18th to walk you through the next seven chapters in each of these four columns that we're working through. But before we sign off, Pastor Stephen, I wonder if we can get you to pray for us. I'd love to. These are heated times. So pray for us as pastors. Pray for us. Pray for our listeners who are listening. Yeah. Everybody right now is given witness in the public square. And uh, pray for our leaders, too, who are making these tough decisions. And a bit selfishly, pray for my province. We, uh, the yeah. St. John's just yeah, announced while I've been doing this, they're in a full lockdown. We had actually 53 new cases announced today with 32 more presumptive positive tests. 
which is by far and away the biggest record for us in our little province. Yeah. Um, and so obviously we're walking this. I am back to 10 people now gathered. So yeah. I've got to redo that. My favorite 2020 word pivot yeah. uh, as all this. But you know what? Romans 8.28 is still true. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the way that you have gifted the church throughout the centuries and millennia with men and women that can reflect you. And so, Lord, as we follow this Robert Murray McShane reading program, I thank you for the way you saved this man Hmm. and the way he systematized reading through your word that we can benefit from so many years later. Lord, I do pray for my brothers here, for all of our listeners and viewers. They represent people, souls, families, marriages, churches across this country and indeed around the world. And Father, again, I will always contend, you are not a God so arbitrary as to know the hairs of our head if you're not going to know the affairs of our heart. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and powerful. Thank you that we can trust you in the midst of COVID, economic uncertainty, political rivalry and upheaval. But Lord, you our God alone. And if anyone is listening or watching this and they have questions or they are searching for you, Lord, may they know the sweet call of yourself to them to, to come to you and give you their burdens. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would continue the transformation of making us more into your image. And we give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you for joining us, friends. And uh, thank you, listeners, as well. God willing, we'll be back here February uh, 18th for another episode of Going Deeper Online with the fabulous Into the Word panel. So we'll see you then. God bless and take care. Soon.